crossroads and the future is completely within our control. We're living through the single biggest culture shift of our time. This is the time for us to just really take charge. That's what revolutions do. They enable the impossible. Hey everyone, welcome to this episode of The Gross Show. I'm Kip Bodner, and man, we're talking about something that I wish existed 10 years ago when I got married, a unified wedding registry. We had like five different registries. It was this horrible process. People didn't know where we had stuff. And Shanlin Ma started Zola after her time at Guilt Group and learned some really valuable lessons about e-com and scaling the right business model. And she's applying them in some really interesting ways. I think there's a lot that you're going to learn. I think you're really going to enjoy it. Let's dive into our conversation with Shanlin Ma. Thanks for taking the time to chat with us today. Of course. I'm excited to chat. Cool. So you are one of the co-founders of Zola. But prior to Zola, you were at Guilt. And before Guilt, what were you doing? So I grew up in Australia, went to undergrad in Australia, and moved to the U.S. to go to business school because I wanted to be a part of Silicon Valley and the, the technology industry. And one of the reasons I wanted to go to business school was because I was reading from my home in Sydney, Australia, about all the exciting tech companies that were really taking off at that time, which were companies like eBay, Amazon, Yahoo, Google. I even have had some of these articles up on my wall, staring at them thinking, (laughs) I have no idea how I would ever be able to work at one of these companies. I had never known anyone to work or live in the US. And the way that I, I thought my road in was these companies all seem to have Stanford in common. So I thought (laughs) if I can get myself to Stanford, I think I could get to work at one of these companies and learn from there. So that's why I applied to business school, was lucky to get in. And at that time, I remember in class, we had a steady stream of professors and guest speakers from these companies um, in one class. It was taught by Andy Grove, the great Andy Grove of Intel. And it was, um, he had guest speakers like Meg Whitman come in and talk about her her work at eBay. And it was just Mm -hmm. the most incredible thing because I remember we would look at eBay growth charts and they were (laughs) off the chart, literally. (laughs) Literally, yeah. Yeah. And so it it just, uh, this stream of people creating great companies, one after the other, it made you feel as a student, like it was really doable, like everyone kind of had a shot at doing the same thing. So we've talked to a bunch of people and a lot of the folks we've talked to over the course of our show have have gone to business school, like like you, Stanford and Harvard, some of the best business schools in the world. They talk a lot about the network and the people that they met there. But I guess what I was wondering is, what's the information or like the lesson that you learned Mm -hmm. while you were at Stanford that you're applying now as a founder? You know, I can remember very vividly, even though it was 10 years ago, the number one lesson I learned there was that nothing else matters apart from product market fit. I can still hear Andy Ratcliffe saying, in order to have product market fit, you need to have 
a big market, you need to have the right product for that particular market. And if you can, can have or gain that product market fit, it can overcome a lot of things. It can overcome an inexperienced team or perhaps not the right team or perhaps competitive dynamics that may be challenging, but all the things mm. that you expect to prepare yourself to face in business, you can work through if you have a great product market fit. And I think I then experienced that firsthand during my time at Gilt. Talk to me about that. Like you were at Gilt, which during the time that company was getting started, I thought mm -hmm. was really doing some very revolutionary stuff in e-commerce. And so talk to me about what product market fit actually like looked like in the moment there. Mm -hmm. like, yeah, so when I f first joined Gilt, it was in 2008, and the product had launched very recently. And when I joined, the first thing I did was talk to a bunch of both current users and then um, people who were not users. And the same things kept coming up again and again in this qualitative user research, which was I constantly heard the words, I love Gilt so much or I am so obsessed with guilt, or I'm addicted, I can't stop mm -hmm. checking guilt. I, 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 like, and everyone, whenever we would bring them in for user research, would just want to talk about the product and how they could buy more and how they could get the inside scoop into being able to spend more money on guilt. <laughs> um, and so that was on the qualitative side, it, just the passion that people had when they talked about the product it was palpable. It was like they were in love. <laughs> On the numbers side, I think the, the quantitative data really showed that whenever we put up new merchandise for sale, and I remember at that time it was the flash sales model. So really yeah. the product of guilt I think of at that time was you get great designer brands at 80% off for a limited time only within yeah. limited quantities. And so that as a product, we could see very clearly in the data, it was growing exponentially. And so all we could do was almost like keep up with that demand because the demand intent that the customers had when they came to the website, it was so clear. They came to buy, they came to check out as quickly as they possibly could. And so what I think about now in any e-commerce business is, what can you do or how can you create a product that has similar demand intent? You want customers or users who have some demand for the product. So say they intend to buy a dress and they come to your site with the intent of buying a dress from you. And that's different to, oh, I am generally a woman who likes to buy dresses. I'm going to look online at dresses today, but I don't necessarily need to buy today. And I don't necessarily need to buy from any one store in particular because 20 stores carry this brand. And I don't even really know if I need to buy this brand today. Yeah, it's, it's, the, class, it's the classic idea of urgency, right? The hardest yes. thing for a, a business or a marketer or a salesperson to actually do is instill <laughs> urgency. Yes. And, and you guys were, were really smart. You build a model around... The understanding the value of urgency and doing everything you could, having different levers that you could pull mm -hmm. to to drive that urgency, which is fascinating. Yeah, exactly. You were at Gilt. Uh, what, what were some of the lessons that you could share with us? I think I learned a lot about 
what really works well in e-commerce businesses and also what doesn't work so well. So in the category of what works really well, um, I, I spoke about you need a, a group of customers that are very passionate, that love your brand and your product. And part of that love was, was not just from those dynamics that I mentioned to drive demand intent. It was also because the user experience design of the site was beautiful. It was innovative in its time in the way that it provided a visual search or a visual browse yeah. for products. So in photography, in the way that you navigated the website, you felt like you were shopping from a fashion magazine. And there were not a lot of other sites where you could look at beautiful images and then buy them and own them within a few clicks at a great price at that time. Yeah, and and, and well, I, I remember using the app and I, I take it a step further is you guys not only delivered that experience, you did it on a mobile device. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which at that point in time was, that was a big deal. And it was a, a revolutionary feeling to have the ability to be like walking to lunch because you guys often started those sales midday yes. and feel like you could be shopping in a store even though maybe you were in line at CVS or something, right? Yes, yes. And one of the things we talked a lot about it as, as the mobile team was how can we make this fun? How can we bring joy and delight and a little bit of, kind of mystery into the iPhone app in a way that you don't find on our website. So yeah. one of the things that I think we were the first to do was this idea of a sound or a ringtone, kind of a ding when the sale started at 12 noon Eastern or 9 a.m. Pacific time yeah. so that your phone kind of dinged when the sale started and that was actually the feature that that I saw most often come up in uh, user research of users saying, oh, I love guilt, I love that sound, I know that when I hear that sound I have to rush to my phone and check out that day of sales. And that was just something that people considered as, as like a fun game that they knew they should start playing at that time. So that's on the positive side of all the things that I thought, well, any yeah. business that I would start in the future, I want to capture those same elements. And then on the, the category of learnings <laughs> that I would not want to replicate again, there was a lot that I learned around the business model of e-commerce and the challenges to, to create a profitable e-commerce business. So specifically, Inventory is a huge <laughs> bear. And in fact, many VC investors will tell you that they don't like to invest in businesses that require Have inventory. Yeah, that require a lot of investment into inventory. So that was one big lesson was any future business would like to avoid having a business that's driven by inventory. I think the other was thinking about returns, which is another challenge in e-commerce because uh, you think you've sold something and, and just say you think you've sold 100 items and for normal e-commerce businesses, what you don't often factor is, oh, actually I'm getting 20 to 30 to sometimes 40% of that back in the form of returns. And then it's, it's costly to administer the returns, ship the returns mm -hmm. there and back and then have to sell it again, essentially. So those were, I think, two of the things that 
that along with all the, the positive elements of the guilt business, we thought about how do we take another swing at this with Zola? And when we're thinking about Zola as a business, how can we both take the best of what we saw at guilt, but also mm-hmm. avoid some of the pitfalls? Give us the rundown of, of Zola for people who aren't familiar with it. So Zola is an online wedding registry that we created for couples getting married today who are the millennial generation. And we wanted to create a wedding registry where couples can register for the things they really want in um, a way that reflects who they truly are as a couple on the devices that they live today. When we started Zola, it was actually born out of, like many other startups, a personal need or personal pain that we felt. So uh, 2013, the year that we were thinking of ideas for a business was also the year that all my friends got married at the same time. <laughs> and that, you know, everyone has that year. And that was the year. Yeah, mine was the year after, I think. Oh, okay. But yeah, totally agree. <laughs> and so you have to buy a lot of wedding presents from a lot of different wedding registries during that year. And I was on these wedding registries buying for my closest friends. And I found it to be the worst e-commerce shopping experience I had ever seen. And <laughs> I was, it was so pained because I wanted to give my friends something meaningful that really reflected how much they meant to me. And yet all I saw on their registry were things that were impersonal that I knew they weren't really passionate about. I knew that they weren't necessarily the people that that had 50 different silver spoons in their home. And yet that was what was on their registry. And so as a, a guest buying for a gift, I did not love the experience. And then as we talked to the couples who were actually doing the registering, found they also hated their experience on their side. So no one is happy in this <laughs> transaction. That smells like opportunity when yeah. both, both sides yeah. are not working well. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, talk to my co-founder now, his name is Nobu, and he was the head of the user experience design team at Guilt Group. And mm-hmm. he and I had worked very closely together for many years at Guilt. And we were talking about, you know, if we were to create a wedding registry online from scratch today, what would we do? What would we want? How would we create something that was different and just so much better than anything else out there? And what we came up with was we would allow people to register not just for products that we knew they wanted, but also experiences and honeymoon funds or cash funds or cash for a puppy or home renovation or anything they wanted. We would also let them create a registry that was as beautiful as the rest of their wedding because we know that people today really care about how their wedding looks and registries before Zola you could not personalize or customize any part of it. And so it was. It ended up looking like the worst part of your wedding. And then lastly, what we heard from our friends getting married and registering elsewhere was that there was this huge pain around once people started to buy gifts for you from your registry, they would just start showing up at your home. And <laughs> oh, yeah. you would have no idea what's coming or who sent it or you know, what's, what you even want to do with that gift. It just starts piling up in your living room and you suddenly are stressed out that things are arriving while you're away on honeymoon. And 
it just turns out that one of the things that should be really happy, which is getting gifts from friends, ends up being very stressful and like the worst part of <laughs> your wedding. And, and so we thought that's a solvable problem. You know, we know that <laughs> technology can solve that very easily in that we believe you should only receive your gifts once you are ready to receive them. And so those, those were the, our ideas of how could we create a much better wedding registry. And it turns out no one else in the registry space does any of this. So that's, that was the beginning of Zola. And, and so we thought, okay, that could be a product idea that has potential for product market fit. Mm-hmm. How do we then now start thinking about this business in a way that we avoid some of the business model pitfalls that we saw previously. Yeah, totally. Break, yeah. Take us back into what, how you built the model, right? Because yeah. that's, that's just as hard as the product market fit side of things. Yeah. So when people are registering for their wedding registry, they, they do want to look at a broad range of things that they could potentially receive into their home. So things for their kitchen, living room, lounge room, etc. And initially I was thinking, oh, does that mean we have to buy all these products and have them <laughs> and then ship them out? And, the, uh, and quickly said, no, never again would I want to do that. Um, so we started looking at, would we be able to use the dropship model, which is essentially the idea of a brand um, shipping a product to one of our customers direct from their warehouse. Mm -hmm. And we started to realize that while we had seen this idea of dropship starting to happen at Gilt, the year we were starting Zola, we found that actually a lot of the home brands were moving to enable dropship in Mm -hmm. a much bigger way. And so that was one of the aha moments was, oh, I think we could actually do this business in a way that is much more efficient because we don't have to suddenly have tens of hundreds of thousands of products sitting in a warehouse where we don't know what's going to sell where or when. So that was a key moment which helped us avoid inventory. And then the other big moment was thinking about returns. And so I mentioned that we we only want to ship a product to our customer once they are ready to receive it. And that got us starting to think, well, what if they could do a virtual exchange online through our site or through our mobile app before they even request anything? And so we built this idea of a virtual return online mm-hmm. so that you know, in registry, we find most people actually don't want to receive their gifts to their home until they've come back from their honeymoon, they've had a chance to breathe and then they take well, a lot of people are even like moving homes during a wedding oh, right there's a lot exactly. of it's a very transitional time in life exactly right? yeah exactly you're, you're totally right so actually most people come back from honeymoon they look to then where are we moving and then they look at once they're moved in what out of our list of wedding gifts do we want to now receive and they they then for those gifts, they say, you know, send it to me now from Zola. And then there's some gifts where they will do a virtual return and use that to buy perhaps something else on Zola, like a bigger ticket item, like a couch or a, you know, a Sonos stereo system or something like sure. that. And that, that actually has meant that we have virtually no returns because 
people aren't receiving anything that they haven't already decided they really want. Um, so that has been a big game changer for us as we now have a business that doesn't have two of the biggest problems of other e-commerce businesses. You mentioned you talk to your users every day. Like, how, how, do you, how do you, as somebody who's built product for a long time, think about getting the right information from them, not hearing what you want to hear, but like, how do you formulate your questions? How do you approach those conversations? So the new product development process, actually one of my favorite topics to talk about, is that Nobu and I will do a bunch of paper prototyping. So we will sketch mm-hmm. perhaps 10 different ideas for a wedding registry. Say we're in 2013, we were sketching many different ideas of how our wedding registry may come to life and then pull a few people who are in the stage of they're engaged, they're getting married in a year's time and talk them through the ideas and then just get a very quick read on what are their top three ideas. And so we try to narrow down if we have 10 different concepts to what are three concepts that we have found actually very quickly rise to the top. We'll then take that into online prototype and make it feel more like an actual website and have that online prototype be viewed by, again, a different set of users who are in the the consideration phase. So early on, we did a lot of work to find people who were engaged recently and were getting married in the coming year so that they were in the decision-making process of picking a wedding registry and they had not yet decided and we would sit them in front of our online prototype and just let them click through it let them talk through what they think they're seeing and whether they like or they don't like different features that we had put into the prototype and we would try not to sell it or try not to even show our enthusiasm for our product because the thing that we were waiting to hear and the thing that I looked to hear every time is that at the end of the prototype viewing we really want to wait for the user to ask to use the product themselves so i will never say will do you want to use this product i will just say great thanks for your time really appreciate it let me know (laughs) if you have any questions bye (laughs) and the sign of early product market fit or early indications of product market fit are when the user will unprompted say, is this wedding registry going to be ready in time for me to use it for my own wedding? Mm -hmm. When we first started our earliest prototypes, we were not hearing that. And so we would take the feedback, we would go away, we would tweak our ideas and the execution of ideas, and then we would put it in front of more users and more users. And over the period of a few months, we actually then had quite a few people saying, is this going to be ready for my wedding? Can I use this myself? I even had one person start to get teary-eyed because she was looking at a lot of other registries and she was saying, oh my goodness, this is so much better than anything else. Please, (laughs) is this actually real? Is this going to be real? And that was the moment that I thought, ah, this emotion, I've seen it before. Mm -hmm. I saw that at Guild. I think we're onto something. And so that's when we decided, oh, we should build this product. That's an awesome story. And I love your your tie back throughout about that emotion, emotion being validation of product market fit or new product direction. Before we run out of time, I want I've got someone here who has spent years thinking and obsessing about e-commerce, 
What's the future of e-commerce look like? What's going to change? I think there's three big trends happening in e-commerce now, and there's a bunch of startups and companies around each of these trends that I think are, are really exciting. One is direct-to-consumer. So mm-hmm. the Warby Parker, Harry's, and Casper, all these companies are, are showing that if you can create a great brand that really talks to consumers directly, the consumers love that. <laughs> there's, mm-hmm. there's, they don't have, they don't need a reason to go anywhere else if you can build that connection directly to the customer and, and cut out a lot of costs in doing so. So that's one I think that, that a lot of people already see. I think the other is the bucket around services that serve consumer commerce companies. For example, Shopify, Stripe, there's now a bunch of new startups that are building tools for commerce companies to better connect to their customers, whether mm-hmm. it's through chat bots or chat analytics or um, services that you can automate online that serve commerce startups. I think that suite of platform tools specifically for commerce players will will just become better and better and ultimately will, will actually result in better commerce companies because the commerce companies can focus less on their underlying infrastructure and more on developing a brand and a relationship with the customer. And then the third bucket, and this is the one that I would consider Zola falls into, is next generation marketplaces. The idea here is that there are specific needs where the customer does want to go somewhere to look at a lot of different brands and services and experiences that they might potentially want to buy in the one place because there's a great reason for them all to be together. Sure. Uh, so the wedding registry is an example of that because you don't want to create three different wedding registries. You want one and you want everything you want in that one place. Mm-hmm. I think other marketplace examples that we've seen are you know, things like Etsy is a great example of that you know, where there's specific needs that the customer has and they want to know where can I go to find a range that is kind of pre-screened according to this particular need or use case. Um, so I think we'll see more and more interesting marketplaces along the hundreds of niches out there. Well, those are three really, really interesting trends, and I kind of agree with you. Uh, I just really appreciate taking a few minutes and chatting with us today. Thank you so much. It's great to chat. Hi, thanks so much for listening to today's episode. If you love The Grow Show and you like what you heard today, please leave us a review in iTunes. It helps us share The Grow Show with the world.